I want to welcome you to our program today and thank you for joining us. I'm Professor Larry Jacobs. I direct the Center for the Study of Politics and Governance at the University of Minnesota's Humphrey School of Public Affairs. Our program today, which is brought to you in partnership with the National Conference of State Legislatures um, and the Certificate in Election Administration Program here at the Humphrey School. Just a quick word about the Certificate in Election Administration. I know some of you are taking classes, others are thinking about it, and maybe some of you ought to be thinking about it. It's a pioneering online program that shares best practices um, with current election officials, and we prepare <laughs> students who have not yet entered the field but would like to. It's an online 12 credit course. It's taught by prominent leaders in election administration from all over the country. It's accessible 24 hours a day. You fit it into your schedule. We have a strong placement record and some of you in the field know that there's a good uh, amount of turnover coming in the next uh, few years. If you'd like more information, um, you can contact us at cea at umn.edu. Um, so let me uh, enthusiastically uh, um, begin by welcoming your participation. You will see at the bottom of the screen, there's a Q&A button. Please give us questions or comments. Uh, we really appreciate those. They become a core part of the conversation we're gonna have over the next hour. And we'll get to as many as possible. Let's begin today's terrific program, Voting. What changed in 2020? We are pleased and delighted to have with us Wendy Underhill as Director of Elections and Redistricting at the National Conference of State Legislatures. Wendy will be moderating and I now turn it over to Wendy Underhill. Thank you, Wendy. Well, thank you, Larry. On, on behalf of NCSL, I wanna say how much I really appreciate the work that you and Lee Chittenden are doing here at the University of Minnesota to support our nation's election officials. I wish I had had this opportunity decades ago when I was doing my MPA. I think I would have been a good election official and I missed my chance. So I'm a little bit of a wannabe for all the folks out there who are actually doing the work on the ground. And I always love to learn from the folks who actually do run the elections and we'll get a chance to hear some of that today. As Larry said, we're here to talk about voting, what changed in 2020. And I'll share a couple of thoughts of my own before I turn to the panel. Um, one thing that changed is that uh, election administration was never front page news until 2020. Uh, and I'm pretty sure that most election administrators preferred it when it wasn't on the front page. There is, of course, the silver lining when it's on the front page. Uh, election officials have an opportunity to explain their processes and uh, um, uh, share sort of the, the uh, details of the work that they do. Um, uh, the second thing I'll say is that uh, public didn't know a lot about how elections were run before 2020. It was just sort of assumed, like we assume that roads are there for us. We assume that elections are there for us as well. So because of the, all the attention on it, people realized that elections are really about the details. And in 2020, the focus was largely on the details relating to absentee or mail voting, but the details on running safe in-person operations were every bit as important as well. So I am hoping that with our uh, conversation today, we'll be able to zoom in on those details and then zoom out and get the big picture as well. To do that, we have um, uh, two different states represented. 
of the states are very different from each other. We're gonna start in New Jersey, which is the state where my parents hailed from. And I spent many um, happy uh, times there with grandparents. Um, it's obviously East Coast, it's ob obviously mostly urban, but what you might not know about New Jersey is that its elections are run by a complex web of local boards. There's a board in each county for voter registration and a separate board for the elections, if I've got that straight, uh, Bob, you can straighten me out if I'm not right. And that their chief election official is an appointed secretary of state. Um, so representing this great state of New Jersey, we are delighted to have Bob Giles with us. He is the state election director and has been in that role since 2008. And that means that he has worked under Republican governors and under Democratic governors. And that meant that he had to keep the same nonpartisan approach throughout those years of, of working in the field. And then if we can, we're going to move west to Montana, a state about as different from New Jersey as it can be. And in Montana, elections are run by elected county clerks and their chief election official is an elected officer, um, the secretary of state. And that seems pretty normal when you're in the West, but it, I just wanna make the point that how we structure our elections is different from state to state. And we hope we'll have representative uh, Wendy McKamey with us. Uh, she was first elected to um, office in 2014, I'm fairly sure. And her election was decided by four, uh, excuse me, 16 votes so she knows how important every single vote is. Um, and then we have one person with us today who's been watching the national scene, and that's Ryan T. Beckwith, a national political reporter for Bloomberg News. I know him as a reporter. He calls with good questions, and then his stories are always first rate, which is why we were delighted that he said yes to coming and joining us. And then I just learned that he teaches journalism at Georgetown. So he will be able to give a little bit of a national perspective on what happened in the 2020 elections. And Bob, I'm gonna start with you. Uh, what was going on in New Jersey in January of 2020? And then what was going on at the end of the year? Uh, thank you for having me, Wendy. And uh, this is a, a great panel I'm, I'm really looking forward to today. Uh, before I start, I just wanna, if you'll indulge me for one moment, just to, the, the reason we were able to get here today is because of all the local election officials out there. and I. They, they really are the unsung heroes. And I really want to start by just like thanking them. Uh, and I think that that's really critical. They get overlooked a lot. Uh, they, they are the folks that um, really, really make things happen. So um, a lot of what I am going to talk about today was, was things that they had to implement um, and sometimes on a very short notice. So um, I, I know my colleagues around the country would say the same about their local election officials, but in New Jersey, I, I think we have the best local election officials in the country. Um, since I'm the only election director on the panel today, that will stand. Um, so jumping into where we were in January, obviously it was a different world in January. Um, the focus was on cybersecurity and protecting the election. Uh, coming off of 2016, we worked for years to, to make sure we were ready for the next presidential for the 2020. So the, the decisions we were making at that time and the plans we were laying out at that time were really based on how do we protect the election. And, and so like in New Jersey, we, we decided to go to a new voter registration system was one of the decisions. It was, a, it was a voter registration system built around security. Um, and it was really based on, on that. And so 
so we launched it because we wanted to have this secure election and we knew there's always a challenge when you launch a new system, especially in a presidential year. So, um, you know, we, we asked our counties to kind of take on a big, big challenge with that. And, and of course, you know, we, we get into March and, and the whole world changes and, uh, you know, the, the focus changes. But I, I think what's important to remember is um, even though everything changed in March, in March, the, the work that we had done up to that point, um, and not just cybersecurity, but just, just coming together, working on continuity of operations plans, doing tabletop training exercises, getting us ready for emergencies, whether they were physical or cyber. And I, and I think uh, that really positioned as well, even though the, the crux of it came out of cybersecurity, it put us in a position to really um, be ready for something like this to, to the best of our ability. And you know, had 2016 not happened, I don't know that we would have been uh, as ready for a pandemic. And um, so I, I think there was a lot of benefits to having that mindset, um, uh, all our partnerships. And I think that was really important the partnerships we developed over those, the, you know, from 2016 up through 2020 and, and continue with the federal government, uh, uh, you know, Department of Homeland Security, CISA, the, you know, we have all of these organizations and, and these agencies that were out there that we didn't know them in 2016. And now we're, we're all a very tight knit group. We have a government coordinating council that, that is a mix of election uh, state election officials, secretaries of state and um, local election officials. And they're able to uh, really um, kind of pass the word around the country. So, so going into March, we're, like I said, we were, that was kind of the focus where we were going to be secure. And then, then when the, the pandemic started and, and, and really hit, it really did change everything. Um, and we, people were pushing elections off. Uh, we, we moved our spring elections further into the spring to give us a time, a time to really get a handle on everything. Um, you know, at that time, there there was a concern that we couldn't get um, PPE. You know, the protective equipment. Um, we couldn't get the the equipment we needed to to process more vote by mail ballots. So there was a big concern if we were heading in this direction of all vote by mail, could we could we pull it off and so for New Jersey, we, we pushed our primary out to July from June and, um, you know, to give us a little breathing room, we did a hybrid of where we started down the road of all vote by mail by giving, by sending the Republicans and Democrats, the registered Republicans, registered Democrats ballots, and then unaffiliated voters got uh, applications for vote by mail ballots. So um, it was kind of a like, okay, you know, a, a chance to really get our kind of dip our toe in the all vote by mail world. And, and, it, and it ended up being very successful. Um, we opened up 50% of our polling places because some people still wanted to vote in person. Some people um, just uh, felt more comfortable that way. And then as we moved to, to November, the decision was made to go all vote by mail. And we felt that, uh, you know, that, that we had that experience. I'm, I'm not saying it wasn't a challenge, um, but by, by having that experience, it, it allowed us to really kind of position ourselves, uh, fix what, what may have been uh, an issue uh, during the primary. And then, um, you know, we, we were able to work through a lot of that and we can get into some of the more details uh, later, but then, as we shifted to the end of the year, um, uh, you know, we found ourselves 
in a position to try and get everything ready for the electoral college. And, and you know, one of the things we did in New Jersey, we allowed uh, the ballots to the ballots to be counted early, 10 days early. So that was a huge help for us. Um, uh, Cause you saw, and we all saw in the media where, you know, if you waited till election day to count, um, it, it would be, it, it created uh, obviously some controversy. So that was a, a big advantage we had getting everything counted, kind of taking our breath and, getting ready for this year. So I'll turn it back to you. I put myself on mute. Um, okay, uh, Bob, we don't have uh, Representative McKamey with us yet. So I'm gonna just take this opportunity to ask a few follow-up questions if you don't mind. Um, and you did mention that you have 50% of your polling places open uh, for the general election. What kind of focus did you put on making sure those were safe or or also how to make sure that everybody knew where their polling place was? So we were fortunate up in there and that was another thing that we saw this year. There were a lot of grant opportunities. There was a lot of people looking to assist us. The federal government had grant money, there was private grant money out there. So that allowed us to do a, uh, a very large education campaign um, because it was going to be different. So we were consolidating polling places because there were a lot of people that really, really want that in-person voting experience. So what, what we did is we allowed the in-person voting experience to happen uh, by two ways. You could bring your vote by mail ballot and drop it off at the polling place. So if you still want to go to your polling place, you could do that. Uh, or you would have to vote a provisional ballot. And this is something that, again, we, we can talk about is, is you know, you, you you set up and you build your elections based on the equipment and the tools that you have. We didn't have electronic poll books, so we weren't able to allow people that had already received the vote by mail ballot, uh, cast their ballot, uh, cast their vote on a voting machine. So we had to have them all vote uh, a provisional ballot. So we, we did a lot of education, a lot of signage, a lot of, uh, you know, just really getting out to the public, TV commercials, print, uh, social media, just so so people were were aware of what was what was going on and what was about to happen, and and, and we were very fortunate. And again, it goes back to to our you know, our local election officials really really being challenged to find locations that that places that you normally would use were closed. Uh, a lot of community centers were not open; you couldn't use them. So one of the things um, uh, the governor did was. Uh, if, if you couldn't find locations and you needed to um, go to a, a larger, almost like a vote center kind of uh, scenario, uh, even though schools were open, they were closed for in-person learning on election day. So that would allow us to get into the building and utilize schools and keep everybody safe. So, so that was something that, that, was, that was new, but um, it worked out very well. There's so much in there. I just want to ask you every detail in there, but I will just restrain myself a little bit. And I will ask though about provisional ballots. It was my impression that when there's a great number of provisional ballots, it slows things down and it takes a lot of time because each one has to be handled individually. So if you were suggesting that people who come to the in-person polling place vote on a provisional ballot, were there some consequences that you either understood were coming or that were un unexpected? So one of the things that, that, that changed was we allowed voters to bring their vote by mail ballot to the polling place. Normally that's not allowed to drop it off. So we really promoted that to say, you know, you're going to arrive at your polling place and you're going to ultimately vote a paper provisional ballot. Why not just bring your vote by mail ballot with you if you really want to go and, and, and have that experience. So, so that worked out a lot. That, that, that helped a lot 
with that. Um, but you're right, provisional ballots take a while to, to process. And, and that was a, a concern that we had. And that was part of why we allowed them to start counting the vote by mail ballots early. So they could be ahead of that. Because the other thing is you had to count all your vote by mail ballots first before you count your provisional ballots, because you got to make sure that individual didn't vote their vote by mail ballot and then and then come and vote a provisional ballot. So you had to take care of phase one first before you could even get into phase two. So it, it was a lot, uh, a lot of long hours for our locals. Got it. And so that kind of takes me to my next question, which is how does the voter know that their um, ballot was received and counted? And and I, you kind of just explained it here that, that uh, at, I mean, that's part, how do I know if my ballot got counted? And the flip is, how do I know if somebody else didn't get two ballots in the hopper? Now, if you kind of explained that second piece, but if you could just do that a little more slowly, that'd be great. Okay, great. So, so we had a tool called Track My Ballot where uh, a voter could go online and see if uh, their vote by mail ballot was mailed out to them uh, and to see if it had been received back by the uh, Board of Election. So that was a tool. It was the first time we used it. it, it we had it for a while, but it, it wasn't used that widely. Um, so it got a lot of use and, and, you know, and we learned a lot from it. Uh, you know, one of the one of the challenges when you have something like that is you want to protect the person's identity, but they need something to, to you know, to log on with. And, um, you know, so trying to to not make it so public that anybody could go in and log into your account uh, was a bit of a challenge, uh, but I, we ended up getting there. Um, and as far as with, with provisional voting and, and just to kind of go over that again is, so if somebody's, once you're mailed a vote by mail ballot it, um, in our state, because we don't have electronic poll books and we can't verify it at the polling place, we don't know if you've returned that ballot. Uh, so you vote provisionally on election day in this particular situation in, in 2020. And then you, you have to count all your vote by mail ballots first to make sure you, you, you've got that pile of ballots counted, everybody that cast a, ba a ballot uh, by mail, and then you count your provisional ballots to make sure that you, you have that check to see if there, you know, if there's somebody attempting to vote twice or did somebody make a mistake or did somebody attempt to vote uh, on behalf of someone else or, or try to attempt fraud. Oh, great, Bob. I, I, I totally want to talk more, but I also want to hear from Ryan. So we're going to put you on hold for just a moment. Yep. I will come back with what's happening for 2021. Um, Ryan, so if you could use that same question of where, what were you looking at at the start of um, 2020? And then what was your story for the whole year? Um, uh, and where did we end up at the end of the year? Sure. Well, I think that the first clue uh, that something was going to not work out the way we expected last year was when the Iowa caucuses uh, did not go as expected. I was there for that. Um, we had, uh, you know, rented rooms out and hotels and were uh, really geared up for that. And then that, that whole system went haywire. They didn't have a conclusive result. Um, that may have helped a little bit in March. Uh, I'm a big elections administration nerd. Um, I follow all this stuff. I lived in Oregon when it went to entirely vote by mail. Uh, and uh, I've lived in other states and covered local elections as a city reporter for many years. So I spent a lot of hours hanging out with local elections administrators and uh, found that it always paid off to know exactly like how a runoff works, what the threshold is, who calls it, um, because uh, at midnight when your boss is yelling at you is not the time to be trying to understand the statute uh, uh, for a rate, covering a race. Um, 
in March, when everything happened, I went to my editors right away and said, we should do a story about vote by mail. And they said, that's really boring. No one cares. Um, and uh, by the end of March, it was actually like a feature in Business Week. So uh, there was a really quick turnaround there from um, this is Ryan's pet thing that he cares about to, oh my God, we need to write about this. And by the summer, um, that became like a full-time story for me among uh, all the other things that I was doing. That was suddenly like my beat was like, how are elections being run? Um, by the, by the late summer, it was not even my, it was still nominally my beat, but I, there were now like four other people working on it, um, because it was so important. Um, a lot of that came down to people assuming that this would be decisive in, uh, in the election and who won. And I personally, um, though, uh, I'm not, uh, above using that to convince my editor to let me write a story. I personally think that is really vastly overestimated. Uh, I think if you look at Wisconsin and what happened in the primary there, that was a really good example uh, of the idea that, that uh, trying to make changes or not make changes to how an election is run because of how you think that will affect the electorate uh, can backfire, can not work at all the way you expected. Uh, and I don't think that at the end of the day that the way that the election was run or whether votes were cast in person or by mail really made that much of a difference uh, in who won. Uh, these, if, if it does make a difference, and there's lots of studies about this, it is very minor. It does not increase turnout as much as people hope uh, to vote by mail. Um, it does not seem to in increase anything on uh, who votes uh, the only differences that you can run into is how votes are counted. With vote by mail, there is a higher rejection rate. And uh, that's in part because if you get rejected in person, you can like resolve the issue right then. Uh, if you mail in a ballot and it gets rejected, then it kind of depends on how good the system is for following up with you. In some states, they have a vote tracker, which I really think is a great um, program where it tells you if your ballot has been received and what status it's in. Uh, in some states in California, they'll even text you like when your ballot has been processed, your, your vote has been counted, like they will actively reach out to you instead of just making it available. Um, but uh, if, if you mail it in and it gets rejected and then they don't get back in touch with you, that can be a problem. There's also some evidence that vote signatures uh, and that signature matching um, can, could be problematic. Uh, in Florida, which is one of the few states where we have this kind of data, uh, the um, mail-in ballots are rejected at a vastly higher rate for younger voters and Black and Hispanic voters. And the theory for younger voters is that um, their signatures are likely to change. Um, you know, maybe Robert no longer puts a little heart over the I and Giles or, or, or you know, changes his signature a little bit over the years um, so that, that they may not match what it was when they registered. Um, but there's also evidence, if you look at the uh, county by county level and in Florida, that those rates for Black and Hispanic rejection mail-in votes are not the same. So if there was some outside reason why that's happening, then, uh, you know, some structural reason why that's happening, um, then you would think it would be the same everywhere. Um, but it's also possible that there's some latent racism that causes certain signatures to get rejected at a higher rate. 
so those, there's a lot of questions that we don't know. Um, but again, those effects are so marginal that it really doesn't, um, it really doesn't have as much of an effect as I think a lot of the state lawmakers, party leaders, even elections administrators in states that haven't done these things before think. And so um, a lot of what I wrote uh, last year was really just trying to poke holes in things that people uh, were saying, uh, you know, about what was going on. Brian, that was fabulous. And I wanna, um, uh, I think the phrase is lift up a couple of things you said. And one is that making changes to election administration based on politics is hard and it can backfire. So I hope yeah. I captured- I can give an exact example yeah. of that. In yeah, Colorado, uh, when they went to entirely vote by mail, it was in part because state Democrats thought that it would help them. In fact, when it was implemented, it turned out that Republican voters were more likely to use it and Senator Cory Gardner probably owed, former Senator now, probably owes the election that he won to, the, to that fact in that particular election. By the time he ran for re-election, those uh, either Democratic voters had caught up or uh, the demographics had changed enough that the minor advantage that he gained from that wasn't there. But that is, that is like the classic example that it doesn't work the way you think it will. It, it's really unpredictable. So what I'm noticing is that we have the election administrators who just want to do their job and they you know, give me the rules and I'm going to run it. And then you have politicians who are also policymakers and they are thinking both about what's good policy. They're also um, hearing the message from their party. And these used to be two streams of people. And now I think what you're saying is that the two streams are overlapping a little bit. Is, is that going too far? No, I, th I think what happened last year was that um, prior to last year, a lot of these things were not partisan. Uh, the vote by mail differed state by state. Who was better at getting out vote by mail differed state by state. I think like in, in Arizona and Florida, Republicans had used it for years to their advantage and Democrats in that state had not been able to use it to their advantage. In other states like Colorado, Democrats had sort of mastered the system of, of getting their voters to turn them in. And, um, you know, there's kind of a Pepsi versus Coke thing here that they're, you know, if one of them does something, the other is going to match it. So that's one reason why I think it doesn't have as much of an effect as people think is that the parties respond. There's some evidence that in states that have voter ID, for example, uh, voters of color are at three times as likely to be contacted by a campaign, which indicates that in those states when voter ID is implemented, that democratic campaigns that need voters of color are more likely to say, okay, we got to put more hustle to make sure that you know we contact them. So those things can counteract it. If, if, if you're thinking of these things in a vacuum, as sometimes lawmakers do, oh, we just do this, then this will happen. It doesn't take into account the second order effects that happen after that. Uh, that was great. And let me ask you also about the signature matching that you mentioned. And um, uh, I guess I want to come back to a question that's in our chat box and, and then back to you. Uh, Bob, before we go into our second round of official questions, and that has to do with signature matching. So we know that there is a higher rate of rejection for these ballots, but there's some things we can do about that, about signature verification. And Judd Choate has asked this question, Bob, in, in the chat, how do you do that? So uh, is there anything further you want to add, Ryan, on what signature matching can look like? Sure. And we'll turn it over to Bob for the administrative point of view on that. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think the biggest pressure point on vote by mail is um, is how to verify that it came from the person. The, the level of fraud there 
is higher than in other types of voting, but by such minuscule amounts that it's not really worth um, worrying about. Like it, it, there's, there, there's no race in which that fraud like swung the race, except for like one example in North Carolina. And, the, and that amount of fraud that they were doing was so obvious that it was immediately caught. It, it's really, really hard to do. And some of the things that you heard last year about, oh, you know, foreign countries were going to somehow interfere. I mean, I was like, there's just like about a thousand steps there that would make it impossible for them to do that. Um, but the signature matching is really tricky. Uh, areas that have a lot of vote by mail and that uh, have done it for a long time have machines that do this automatically. Um, I think that reduces the potential for uh, a, a sort of a human error there or uh, influence, like as we were talking about, like uh, the people who are deciding whether or not these match um, being unduly influenced by, by race or education level or class or something like that. Um, in, uh, so those are helpful. Um, signatures are also just, uh, you know, I don't, honestly, most of the time I'm signing right now, it's like with a stylus at like a, uh, you know, CVS or something like that. And it looks nothing like my normal signature, which I never use for paper checks, you know? Um, so I, I'm not sure that there is super accurate way for us to determine someone's identity. Um, the other method that people uh, use is um, you have some kind of number that you need to write on the ballot envelope, which can then be separated from the ballot and that can be confirmed. And then usually that's done underneath something that so that you're not writing that number on the outside of an envelope that's getting mailed. Um, and that is another form of verification that could just be writing down your driver's license number or something like that. Um, really simple. Um, so that's another possibility. But I really think that the strongest measure, is, whatever you do, is just that the, uh, to have really good systems for ensuring that if you have a ballot that's rejected or you have a provisional ballot or whatever, that you are making the effort to get back in touch with those voters and ask them, hey, was this you? Or, you know, your ballot was rejected. Do you want to fix it? Um, the states where they don't have those and the localities where they don't have uh, good systems and have a much higher rejection rate. And that's where you can run into problems. Wow, that was great. Uh, Bob, jump in there um, and see what you can tell us about the practicalities of doing um, the signature verification. And if you could answer the question about uh, do the people whose ballot was rejected know it was rejected, we'll take that off of the list for later. Okay, so in New Jersey, this was the first year we did uh, signature cures. Uh, because we were going all vote by mail, there was a concern exactly as, as Ryan said that, that we'd have a large number of rejected ballots. So, uh, you know, it, it was a program we put in and if your signature did not match, we reached out to you, uh, sent you a form to, to basically fill out and send it back and give you an opportunity to update your signature and verify that yes, uh, I did cast this vote. Uh, and to, to Ryan's earlier point about the stylus, we found in New Jersey, most of our voter registrations come through motor vehicle and we have automatic voter registration now. So at motor vehicle, the whole transaction occurs on the signature pads that we're used to seeing you know, at the stores. So ultimately your signature is on there. And then when you go from this, this electronic, you know, uh, signature pad signature to a wet signature using a pen, a lot of times it is different. And, and, and anybody who goes to the store knows that. So, yeah, you know, we, 
you try to, to let people know a motor vehicle that this is your signature, it's going to be on your driver's license, it's going to be in your voter record, uh, but you still you get these mismatches. Uh, so we, we were, uh, so we implemented it pretty quickly, like many things uh, last year. Uh, you know, we had to learn, we, we reached out to, to, you know, other states that are doing it. Um, we reach out to other um, groups that helped us, you know, and having organizations like the National Association of State Election Directors, the National Association of Secretaries of State. You, you could pick up the phone and you could say, hey, you guys implemented this peer precedent. You know, I, speaking, you know, Judd raised the question, you know, talking to Judd and talking to other states, what is the best way to do it? Uh, and working with groups like the election group that, that helped us. So, um, I think it's important, if you, especially if you're going to do a lot of vote by mail uh, balloting, that, that you have it. And, and we found it to be very, very uh, successful uh, this year. Uh, and I'll just say that my daughter um, uh, got her ballot rejected because she had changed her signature. Um, this was in Colorado uh, where we vote. Uh, and it felt so good to me as somebody uh, uh, associated with the election world to know that her change got caught and she was notified and she was given the opportunity to fix it. Okay, now my next question for the two of you before we go to the many questions that are in the chat from the audience is we've looked at the start and the end of 2020. Where are we? What do you think is gonna happen in 2021? And Bob, I'm gonna to go to you first on this again. Okay. Uh, I, I think what we, we kind of, the little bit of time, uh, you know, in New Jersey, we, our governor's up and our entire legislature. So we, we don't get a break. A lot of states uh, don't have statewide races in, um, or most states don't have statewide races in the odd numbered years. So we, we jumped right back into it. But we wanted to look at the, the, the lessons learned and what, what could we utilize going into next year? Um, you know, what were the successes? What were the, the failures? Um, you know, some of the successes as far as, uh, we started using drop boxes for vote by mail last year. Incredibly successful. People really liked that opportunity. Uh, you know, there was concerns with the post office being able to deliver the ballots on time. So, uh, and maybe you couldn't get all the way down to your board of elections office. So, so drop boxes. We're going to continue to utilize those uh, going into into this year. Um, Where you know the signature cure is still still happening. You know, one of the things that hopefully we don't have to use this year that we used last year, and I know a lot of states did, is the National Guard. Um, you know, that was that was something unique, and they've been deployed not you know occasionally in the past, but but to utilize them in, in so many different ways. Um, you know, they they were out of uniform, and they were incredible. To you know, they they just jumped right in and and helped whether you needed them at a polling place, you needed them to to work in your election office and they, they were ready to go. And it was kind of a unique opportunity for them because they're out there defending democracy. They got to kind of pull the curtain back and see how, how elections run. And, and, and a lot of them really walked away with this really good feeling. So, so as, you know, as far as that, um, like I said, we hope we don't have to use them, but it's nice to know that they, they are out there. And, and I think just some of the things we learned that, that we have to do better on is, is um, like the, with legislators, giving the locals and the election officials a longer runway. Um, you know, you, you saw because, because last year we had to do things and we had to do things in a very condensed timeline, but you, you saw where you ran into problems when, when you did that and you had difficulties doing that. So I think that's a good lesson learned to say, 
you know, we, we did all vote by mail in three months. That's the, it's a huge undertaking. Um, uh, but it's not something you would ever want to do, but, but you don't want to fall and, and say, well, if you did that in three months, you can do anything and, and they can do anything when, when the situation calls for it. But I think it's, it's really important that, that, you know, that's one of the lessons learned. And then the equipment that, that you have, uh, you don't realize how much you rely on the equipment you have. And if it's outdated and then an emergency comes up, you, you, you're, you're a bit strapped at times because now the entire country was looking to buy, you know, envelope openers and, you know, and printers and scanners. And it was, it was uh, this mad scramble to see who could buy what first. And, it, you know, it, it pitted states against each other uh, to, to get equipment. The same with the PPE. You had everybody out there looking for PPE. So um, there are things you can prepare, you know, prepare for. Uh, like making sure your equipment's up to date and, and, you know, making sure you have adequate uh, uh, equipment and supplies, things you really can't plan for is like a pandemic, but, but we've learned so much from this that, that will be applied uh, across the board. Um, uh, thank you, uh, Bob. I'm thinking that there is a, a great parallel between trying to get the election equipment and hospitals trying to get masks uh, mm -hmm. last year. Um, and you also made the point that it takes time to make change and it also takes time for policymakers to think about what needs to happen. So they digested what's, or they're in the process of digesting last year and then coming up with what they wanna be looking uh, forward to. Uh, Ryan, what, what do you think you're seeing this year? Uh, you've had your eye, I think, pretty closely on mm -hmm. what's going on in legislatures at least. Yeah, I was just gonna say one, one thing. Um, when I was asked by my editors who were convinced that, that election day was going to blow up, um, because there were so many problems. And I said, look, ele local elections directors are like Santa Claus. They, they work all year to make sure that that one day goes off well. And, and, and last year was maybe like one of those, you know, claymation cartoon specials that you watch where it's like, you know, everyone's scrambling to make sure that Santa can get the presents out on time. And it comes through in the end. Um, last year was a, was a miracle where it really showed that the, the resilience of the, the local systems that we have. I think there were a lot of problems that people saw. There were also a lot of workarounds that they came up with. Um, what I see going forward uh, is that um, a lot of things about voting, um, people, it, voters like to do things the way they've done them in the past. Uh, I think it's going to be harder than lawmakers think to roll back um, some of the things that were put in temporarily because voters tried them and voters liked them um, by and large. Uh, I think that uh, in areas where, I, I, because vote by mail has become politicized now, I still think you're going to see more early voting because there was a lot of early voting and that was successful and people liked it and it's not as politicized. So I definitely expect an increase in that. I think that uh, blue states um, outside of uh, the, the, uh, the West uh, will move towards all vote by mail elections. We're seeing that in the Northeast now. Um, previously that had been limited to like Washington, Oregon um, and, and Republican states like Utah. Um, but uh, I think that largely rural states are going to adopt that, move toward that model more and, and allowing that um, uh, regardless of the politics. Uh, I think that in the very tight uh, states uh, like Arizona, um, uh, Georgia, I, I think that you're going to see a lot of fighting over the rules and a lot of attempts to, uh, you know, sort of change the rules um, in ways that the lawmakers think might benefit their side. Um, I, 
so I, I do see uh, I do see some of the uh, polarization that came about last year not going away. Uh, generally, in American politics um, right now, once something is polarized, it stays polarized. There's a lot of things that aren't polarized, but once that partisanship kicks in, it's really hard to undo. Um, so I do think that you're going to see going forward probably more Democrats supporting vote by mail, more Democratic lawmakers supporting vote by mail. It may take a couple of election cycles for Republicans in those states to say, we should be doing more outreach this way or let's catch up um, or you know, getting rid of things that vote by mail and getting pushback from voters who, you know, why, why, don't, why can't we do this? Like, like in Arizona, they've always had a, a permanent vote by mail list and there's legislation to get rid of that. I don't think that's gonna go anywhere because people like that permanent absentee list. Um, but, uh, you know, it, 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 will really, it will really only be uh, an issue in those really, really tightly contested states. Uh, I, and you, you talked about uh, the increase of absentee or um, mail voting in Democratic states in the East and, and New Jersey is, of course, the example of that. But I do want to pick up on something you said about Utah being a state with um, all male elections and, and Republican leadership in the legislature and the uh, governor as well. And Montana is very close to that as well. And, and I'm so sorry that Representative McKinney was not able to join us. I believe she's literally on the floor at this moment. So we're all a little disappointed she isn't here. But there's another uh, very much Republican state that uses mail ballots for most everything. And I think a point she was going to make is that they've left it up to the counties to decide. So this isn't top down. The um, It's a county decision. So that's and, a little bit of a shift in that. And every single county in Montana chose to do it. In um, 2020, yeah. Yeah, so I count them as an all vote by mail state because like they are, but technically they aren't um, because they left it to the locals. Got it, got it. And then I guess the other thing is that even if you are a mostly male state, you're still running some in-person operations. And even if you're a mostly in-person voting state, you're running some amount of absentee voting. So all states have to figure out what the balance yeah, it's a misnomer when It is a misnomer when I say all vote by mail states um, because they do have early voting centers because uh, voters with language barriers or um, with disabilities need some need to be able to vote in person. So they, you can't ever get rid of all of that, but you can have these early voting centers and have them open uh, longer hours. Um, so now I'm going to turn to questions from the audience, and we have quite a few here. And Bob, I hate to say it, but most of them have your name on it. Um, so we prepared here. Um, uh, the first thing uh, that came through was, um, what can we do to ensure that the United States Postal Service is better prepared for absentee voting? And I'm thinking this is an opportunity for you to say that the National Association of State Election Directors is um, in good communication on that. Well, now I don't. Yeah, now I don't need to answer. That was a great answer. Um, now, and it's true. Like uh, the national organizations are, are reaching out in each state, and I, I think it's important to to be in touch with your local uh, postmasters. And and so New Jersey's divided into two sections. There's a north and a south, and they meet regularly, and and they have been meeting regularly uh, to. To discuss the the issues that come up, and and there was a, there was a lot of uh, concerns last year, and, and you know, uh, was my ballot going to to get there? And, you know, when they when they put something out that says prepare for a fifteen day round trip, the ballot out and the ballot back, that, that that's concerning to to people. So, 
Um, you know, and the post office is one of those um, agencies that they they have to be on time and correct 100% of the time or they're going to get criticized. And no matter how many millions and millions of pieces they pass through, it's that one that they miss that always is, is a ballot or is something, um, you know, and I, I, I know they, they, they worked hard, they, especially in New Jersey. Like I said, we met with them on a regular basis. And I think that's the key to stay on top of it. Um, let them know when you're sending your mailers out. Let them know when you're expecting the mail back so they can ramp up to, to have their facilities ready. I think that was the, the biggest thing. Um, make sure they're doing a sweep, that you have people that are sweeping the, all the facilities the, whenever your deadline is. That deadline day, they, they have to have extra hands on. They have to have people there ready to, to make sure it's not sitting on a box, you know, in a box in the corner and then you find it the next day and they're all too late. So I, I think that local communication is so critical. Nationally, you know, they're, they're dealing with a lot. It really does come down to, to the locals. I'm so glad you said that because I was thinking about uh, associations such as yours um, sending in letters or something to the USPS, but really it's if you connect to your local postmaster um, and have that good communication. Yep. Um, Ryan, for you, um, the, the question is, we've got a lot of people who are local election officials on the line. How do they operate in regard to reporters? I mean, it should, how, rather than being scared of reporters, there's a way to make it uh, successful for both parties. Any advice you've got for them? Uh, yeah, I would, um, you know, reach out uh, a, a couple weeks before an election to like the Metro editor, um, or if you specifically know which reporter is, you know, going to be covering the local elections and, and suggest that uh, you uh, invite them in and, you know, show them around and talk about um, processes and procedures. I teach a class uh, on journalism and I tell my students like, you know, you need to get your local elections directors like cell phone number and like, you know, find out where their wife works or husband works like so that, you know, you need to be able to get a hold of that person like at 2 a.m. if you have to. Um, because I think that can really help if you, if you can talk through, and, and they should be doing this. I think a lot of local news is really strained right now because they just don't have the manpower that they used to. So they should be doing this. But if you're an elections director, reach out and say, hey, you know, I'd love to bring you in, show you the system, talk you through some of the laws or you know, local rules that might come into play um, to help answer those questions because it's a lot easier to do that ahead of time. Um, it also might not hurt to suggest, uh, you know, doing a, uh, you know, Q&A or, or myths, uh, you know, fact check kind of thing about your local voting, because voting differs so much from area to area and state to state. Uh, there are a lot of things that people heard that, you know, that aren't true in their state, aren't true in their locality, but they heard it because they, you know, they were watching national news. And that's where most people are getting their news now. So um, to be able to say, no, actually in our area, we don't do that. And this is the first time I remember there being concern in one state about how people are voting elsewhere. And maybe that's because people weren't paying attention to election administration till this time. Yeah. But now we care not only how do we vote, how do the people in the rest of our state vote, but now we care about how people vote in other parts of the nation. Yeah, absolutely. That is going to, and there's, uh, I found it remarkable about the, the uh, intricacy with which things were getting polarized. Somebody mentions drop boxes here in the question. Um, the drop boxes, like from, from my standpoint as just a reporter uh, whose, whose job is to just look at sort of what the facts say. Um, 
those are absolutely safe. Uh, they, the people who make the drop boxes for putting in ballots um, also make similar boxes for um, like opiates and cash and library books and uh, maybe not library books, but I think that like heroin and money are things that people, you know, really want to get their hands on. And if they can't, then that design is probably safe for a ballot. Um, there was an attempt in one area by someone to set some ballots on fire inside a Dropbox. It didn't work. There's not enough air inside. Um, they were able to recover most of the envelopes, figure out who the ballots had come from and contact those people and have them fill out another ballot. And uh, the other nice thing about vote by mail is that anytime you're messing with the post office, that's, uh, you know, that's bad news for you. So you really don't want to mess with the mail uh, because that's federal crimes. Uh, Ryan, this is the very first time heroin has come up on a webinar that I've been associated with. So uh, new territory for us. Um, Bob, we've got two questions in the chat about online voting. Um, what will computers do for us in the future? Uh, just, just tell us, is that in our future or not? One of the questions was even in regard to if the postal service is a little weak, would we shift over? What do you think? I don't see on, true online voting happening anytime in, in the near future. Um, there, there's just uh, so many concerns. And, and the, the, the problem that we face with that, there are legitimate reasons to do that, especially with our military and overseas voters. Um, you know, every, for years it was, okay, we'll let them fax. Well, the reality is there's no fax machines anywhere, you know, out in the field. Um, so, so you start to find yourself in this, this dilemma. How, you know, here are these men and women out there defending democracy. And, and we can't get them a ballot or they can't get it back. Um, you know, regular mail just is not accessible. So you have to introduce, you know, electronic delivery and electronic return. Now, there, it, it may not be true online voting, but whether it's by email and, and you know, those are the things we, we've been talking about, you know, when, when we were putting together the, the latest set of voluntary voting system guidelines, uh, the Technical Guidelines Development Committee. Yeah, that that becomes part of it. And FAP has, uh, you know, the um, Overseas Voting Initiative that that they do with the Council of State Governments. And that's that's a big thing we talk about to say, you know, if if the post office and we did run into that where there were there were the parts of the world where the post office were closed to American mail and or they wouldn't or we wouldn't take it. So there was this dilemma we had of how, how do we how do we deal with that? And there are no fax machines. I, you know, when people keep saying, well, just fax it, they're just they're not for that. And that's just something we've seen or very few. So it's a discussion that's going on and not only for the, the military and overseas, but voters with disabilities. So there's two segments of our voting population that, that legitimately need that, uh, but it's how do we get there? I, you know, I don't see it you know, mainstream, but I see us, uh, us going in that direction where voters with disabilities, and in some states they are allowing it. We did allow electronic return for one of our spring elections. Um, we, we do electronic ballot delivery and we do allow the military and overseas voters to return them uh, electronically by email, but, um, but just straight online voting uh, for the mainstream is probably quite a ways off, but, but I, I think we will see um, a lot of discussion for the military and overseas and for voters with disabilities. I'm going to go ahead and say that online voting for uh, people other than those in extreme circumstances like that is never going to happen. And uh, the reason that I say that is that if you know a computer programmer, ask them if they have an Alexa. They don't. 
And the reason why is because they don't trust uh, code because code always can be broken. And there is just no way that you are ever going to be able to do a secure election online. You cannot do it. That's, it's not possible. Software is, is vulnerable and will always be vulnerable. That is just a fact of life. So I don't see that happening um, really on a widespread basis. And the Bitcoin guys can talk about using uh, you know, uh, the methods that they use for cryptocurrencies, that's, it, I, I just don't see it happening. Excellent. So we are coming close to the top of the hour. And I do want to ask, because I work for the National Conference of State Legislatures, if you could each take a moment to comment on what is the responsibility of the legislature versus what's the responsibility of the election officials. And I know that could be very broad, but we got a couple of questions here about um, the Minnesota Secretary of State taking an action without legislative approval and others about what legislation is coming. So, so what's the difference? And Brian, I'll go to you first and Bob just to mix it up a little bit. Yeah, I mean, I think that the, the state legislature and, and Congress is the biggest thing that they can do uh, is set minimum standards so that uh, areas don't try to, uh, you know, game the system um, and uh, provide money um, because equipment and, and manpower is, is really the biggest problem that local administrators run into. Great, the white, that was quick. Bob, uh, you work with your legislature. What, what do you see as the role between them and you? So, and, and we learned a lot this year because the, the, the governor, because of the pandemic, had to issue a lot of executive orders. So, um, so there was a lot of lessons learned. And probably the biggest lesson learned from that and from passing legislation is partnerships. That, that, that is the key to that, that the legislature needs to work with their local state and local election officials. They need to engage their, their secretaries of state. I know our secretary way is, is, is very involved, um, but getting the local election officials at the table, not just, but listening to them. Um, and, and I think that is really the key. Uh, you know, legislators see things happening in, in other states and, and maybe it works there because it, like vote by mail took years to develop and it's not something you can just do overnight or you can do you know in a few months and I think I'd said it earlier that the local election officials uh, need that runway uh, an adequate runway to get things up and running it, there is a, it's not as if they are not saying they cannot do it um, and a lot of times that it comes across unfortunately that way to legislators that oh they're just naysayers but that's not they they want to make sure it gets done right and it's transparent and, and accurate. So I, I think that's the one takeaway that, that you gotta keep pushing those partnerships. You gotta make sure you, know, you're, you're, you have a seat at the table. Uh, and I was going to give you both a moment to give a final wrap up. If there's something that's absolutely burning, certainly we could do it. Ryan, a burning comment you wanna make before I close? Only thing that we haven't touched on is election audits. These are oh, yeah. done in some areas after the election um, has been certified. They do like a random sampling and they invite the public in. The whole thing is live streamed. They have reporters come. Um, it's kind of festive. Uh, they do these in Rhode Island. Uh, and uh, they um, basically pull a random sample of ballots and check them like very openly in front of everyone to show that they match what was in the system. And uh, their numbers are chosen, you know, they roll, they roll eight-sided die like the Dungeons and Dragons uh, uh, ones. Um, 
and they pick the numbers. Uh, so I, I think that that is uh, one way to help restore trust. Um, I think that that is going to be a huge problem going forward is restoring voter trust. I'm so glad you mentioned audits. Um, they're a little complicated to understand, but that might be the next thing going on in legislatures um, to try to bring those to more states. Um, Bob, any last comment from you? Um, just really quickly, I, I think we need to continue the conversation. I think uh, events like this are really important to share information across the states. And again, having these national associations like, like the National Association of you know, State Election Directors is so critical, but so we, we don't want to be 10 years from now, and this is completely forgotten and something else happens and, and we don't have this documented properly. We're not ready for, it may not be a pandemic next time. In 2012, we had Hurricane Sandy, somewhat prepared us for this. So, so you don't want, you know, that, I look back that, you know, eight, nine years ago now we're, 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 we're talking about. So, so you don't want those, you don't want these lessons learned to be lost. Uh, fabulous, good point there. And uh, when you talked about the partnerships, I just want to say that the University of Minnesota and the National Conference of State Legislatures are thinking about not just the partnership between our two organizations, but how can we partner to help election officials be connected to legislators? And that's the two halves that you were talking about. So that's something I, I hope will um, have some uh, traction as we go into this decade. And then my takeaways from this um, conversation are that when I Look at 2020, the local and state election officials really deserve a great deal of credit for what they did between March uh, 10th or 12th and uh, November 6th. And it didn't even end November 6th, you know, all the counting and such afterwards. An amazing job of late nights and uh, weekend work. And uh, my hat is off to, to you folks. And then also the voters deserve equal credit because we know we had higher turnout this year, by far the highest turnout in 100 years. So voters figured out that it mattered and they figured out how to do what they needed to do. And then I wanna also give credit to the press for changing the um, story about elections from just the horse race to let's understand how our elections work. So I'm feeling pretty good having had this conversation with the two of you. I really appreciate you being here. And for all of you who are on, on the uh, outside, I appreciate you coming to here and you're welcome to reach out to any of us afterwards. And with that, I will just say stay safe and uh, stay in touch. Thank you.